Good morning, everybody, and welcome to a special edition of A Vision for You. Today is Sunday, December 6, 2015. The share ID for Friday, December 4th, is 8245. That's 8245. This morning, A Vision for You presents Recovery from Relapse, Ending Our Countless Vain Attempts. All of us have initially come to this program as a result of the suffering, <clears throat> frustration, and pain we experienced compulsively overeating. Many of us, even within the rooms of Overeaters Anonymous, continued to experience the constant defeat, frustration, and pain of compulsive overeating and its relentless progression. As promised, our disease is cunning, baffling, and powerful. OA stands for the proposition that the 12 steps give us freedom from the bondage of food. If the 12 steps are not working for you, then perhaps you're not working the 12 steps. The OA 12 steps, if practiced as a way of life, can and will expel the obsession to compulsively overeat and enable the sufferer to become happy, joyous, and free. Joining us this morning is John Kay, a recovered compulsive overeater from Los Angeles. John is a loyal servant of Overeaters Anonymous and a dedicated messenger of the program of recovery. And welcome to the line, John Kay. Hopefully I'm on now. I hear you, John. Thank you. Okay. So, um, well, thank you very much, Leah, um, for asking me to do this. Uh, my name is uh, John Kiernan. I am a recovered compulsive overeater and alcoholic. And uh, just as a quick background, I have been in <clears throat> programs for 34 years. Uh, I have been abstinent for 20 years, and I've been maintaining between about 100 and 510-pound weight loss uh, for the majority of those years, uh, the fact that uh, you notice I mentioned I've been around for 34, and yet I have 20 years of abstinence is uh, is why relapse happens to be a particular uh, topic of of interest to me and the one I try to help people with. Uh, I think I may have met a lot of you at the Virginia Beach Convention where I was uh, asked to be the host by Leah, and it was a wonderful time. Um, this morning, I don't think I'm going to spend a huge amount of time on my story uh, as such. Um, if anybody really wants to hear my story story, uh, there's numerous <coughs> uh, recordings up on the LA Intergroup website, uh, and you can listen to me there. Uh, but I'll give you a quick background just to make sure you understand I earned my seat here. Uh, I grew up as the child of two alcoholics, and I was a fat kid right from the beginning, uh, Food has been a problem my whole life. Uh, went all the way through school, always the fat kid. Through high school, no dates, no prom, no girlfriend. Um, and uh, I also stayed away from alcohol because I knew that it was a problem in my family. Well, after high school, I uh, was so terribly shy around the opposite sex that I found alcohol changed that. And essentially, I went uh, from food to alcohol almost overnight. Uh, and I only mention that as a way to explain my disease because I just went and began taking my sugar in liquid form. 
uh, and also for the first time practically in my life, I lost weight for any significant amount of weight. Uh, and uh, the way I did that was to just not eat for like a week at a time. And when you're in your 20s, and uh, or even my, my teens, late teens by then, you know, if you don't eat for a week at a time, and then you binge for one night, and then you don't eat for a week, <laughs> you will lose weight. Um, but I think I knew even then I could not, I could not uh, temper this disease. I could only turn it off and on, and that was the way I could do it. At any rate, I went uh, uh, down to a, got to a normal weight for about a half a second. I had my first relationship, my first girlfriend, and then alcohol took over, and I was off to the races with that. And then. After a short amount of time, both the alcohol and the food became problems together, working together. I always joked that I was fat, and then I was a drunk, and then I was a fat drunk. Uh, I found uh, my first my first real AA meeting, uh, I went with my mother a few times when I was a kid, uh, in late 1980. Uh, I... Uh, Got uh, got sober for the first time. Found a, I all of a sudden had a, a small spiritual awakening as to the concept of a higher power. At that time, uh, I immediately by then I was at my about my highest my highest weight, which is about 300 pounds, uh, because I was eating and drinking all the time. And then I started crazy uh, trying to lose the weight again. And then I I lost my sobriety, uh, and I relapsed with that for a short time. When I came back from that, I knew I needed to go to OA because I, by then I had heard of OA. And, uh, you know, the light bulb went off as soon as I heard about it. It all of a sudden made sense as to why, uh, you know, I've got this great brain that has done so many things. But when it came to, you know, the food all my life, it, it, it didn't work. Um, uh, the first, my first go around, go around in OA, um, I think it's a classic OA story. Uh, well, first, the most interesting thing about it to me is the. It was the one time in my life I was anorexic. You know, I've joked that I've had every uh, iteration of this disease. I've been mostly a compulsive eater, but I've also gone been bulimic. I've been exercise bulimic. And on this one time when I first came to OA, I went through an anorexic phase. And what it was about was if you've been fat your whole life, you have this, this fantasy of what goal weight is supposed to be. It's almost like when you hear the words goal weight, there sounds like angels singing, you know, and... Uh, I had this idea that when I get the goal weight, I'm uh, I'm going to become self-confident. I'm going to uh, you know have no trouble talking to the opposite sex. Uh, I'm going to like myself, and you know women are going to be clawing at me as I walk down the street. And and of course, what happened is I got to goal weight, and I got to goal weight, nothing else. So I didn't like myself any better. I didn't feel any better about my inner self, and. I decided, well, I guess that must not be the right weight, and so I lost another 10 pounds, and still I didn't like myself any better and didn't feel any different, and then so I lost another 10 pounds, so finally people are like, dude, you know, gain some weight here, and it's a very important thing that I think I needed to go through to really get that there's no number on a scale that's going to help me feel better about myself. Uh, it's an inside job, and I, I think I needed to do that for myself. Um, I say I had an early, uh, easy abstinence the first time around. I've heard numerous times this story, and I think it's a classic OA one where, you know, I had a, a pink cloud abstinence. It was easy. I put the food down. Uh, you know, I had no urges, and uh, you know, I lost the weight qu- quickly because I was, you know, twenty-something year old male, and 
had the metabolism of a hummingbird, and so whoosh, the weight comes right off. And I and I just I don't understand why people are having such problems. It's so easy. And then of course I gave it away. You know, I I don't like the word slip. It sounds way too passive. You know, it's like you're walking down the street and whoops, you slip and there's a cake in your mouth. No, I gave it away. You know, I I believe. I believe I today I can't get abstinent that abstinence is a gift and it's given to me but I give it away you know and I gave it back um and then I started slipping and sliding and I couldn't understand why it was so hard the second time well in looking back I I, I really did get it um when I first came to OA I would talk about how I was never able to lose weight until I got to OA well and I would say, you know, I, I tried every diet and none of them worked. Well, the reality was they all worked. They all worked once because I'm a good little student and you give me my little syllabus, tell me what I'm supposed to do. I will follow it. And you know what? If you follow any diet, you will lose weight. And I would. The trouble is, is I have an addict's brain that then starts playing games. And so then the second time around, of course, it doesn't work. And that's what happened to me on every one of the diets before OA. But in looking back, that first easy OA abstinence was just another one of those diets, you know. And uh, I took my brain out. I put it off on the side. I said, okay, tell me what to do. I did it. And that was great. The trouble was I made the mistake of taking my brain back at some point. And there is when I started having a lot of problems. And uh, I slipped and slid there for a while. I got mostly abstinent. We had a great group in, in Darien, Connecticut, where I was living at the time. Um and uh, I did pretty well. Uh, I got down to my normal weight. I found, you know, I took a hostage and got married to her. Uh, I began working as a stand-up comic, and I was on the road a lot. And then about that time, the real relapse cycle started. I would, you know, when I talk about relapse, my relapse story wasn't just I went out and then I came back. It was lots of a week on, a week off, a month on, a month off, a couple of weeks on. And that's the way it was. And it's certainly uh, when I was, uh, you know, working as the comic and I was on the road, that was happening a lot. Uh, I then came, got, came back into Connecticut and we moved to Los Angeles. And then my slipping really went off the deep end, my, my food. Um, and uh, I'm going to keep that story short. But finally, after years of struggling with it, I was graced with the gift of the abstinence I have today, which I've had for 20 and a half years. And, uh, and that's mainly the short version of my story. Um, the important thing to really emphasize here was that I was slipping and sliding and slipping and sliding after 14 years in the program. And when I say in the program, I don't mean I would dabble. I was going to three to five meetings a week, you know. And uh, that's, to me, the the most interesting thing. I look back in the 20 years since I uh, came out of that and have spent a lot of time, you know, looking at relapse and thinking about that relapse cycle. And, um, it, you know, it's an important thing. In, you know, in the big book, uh, the word relapse is only mentioned six times. And uh, three of those are in the sort of the post-step uh, chapters, like to the wives, at least only three of them, one of which is just a statistic from one of the forwards, but the two that really address it and the ones that really address relapse to me is from my favorite chapter, which is more about alcoholism. You know, and in the big book it says, our, our drinking careers have been characterized by countless vain attempts to prove we could drink like other people. The idea that somehow, someday, he will control and enjoy his drinking is the great obsession of every abnormal drinker. The persistence of this illusion is astonishing, 
Many pursue it into the gates of insanity or death. And that certainly was the case with me. And it's funny, whenever I'm talking to sponsees and, and, and about relapse, uh, I'll bring up, you know, the uh, sort of the food version of that of saying, you know, it's the great desire of every compulsive eater to someday eat like a normal person. And I remember saying that to a sponsee one day, and he said, no, we don't. We don't want to eat like normal people. We want to eat the way we want to eat and have none of the bad effects. And I thought about it. He's absolutely right. You know, Normal people, I've been normal people at restaurants. They'll order a piece of cake. It'll come over. They'll take one bite and go, oh, that's just too rich. I can't eat any more of that. And I, I don't know about you folks, but I don't really grasp the concept of too rich You know, in, the, in any definition of the word rich. You know, um, But that's my problem. You know? Uh, and you know, in looking at where I was with my the path of my my uh, my program, you know, uh, it says in the big book we had to, we learned that we had to fully concede to our innermost selves that we were alcoholics. Well, that was certainly my case with the food. After all those years, the light bulb went off and said, "Oh my God, I get it now. I I need I'm a compulsive eater, and I just need to do this fine." And guess what? I ate again anyway. And if that sounds familiar to anybody, go read Bill's story because that's exactly what happened to Bill Wilson. You know, it took him years to realize he was powerless over alcohol, and then you know, yet he did it again. You know, he, you know, found himself beating on the bar, asking himself how it had happened again. Well, uh, that's right where I was. And there's, you know, there's other examples in the big book, especially in the stories, you know, of how people have relapsed. But, you know, in almost all those cases, it had to do with stories of relapse, then coming in and getting sober and staying that way. Um, there isn't a lot mentioned in most of the stories of long-term struggle. And, you know, that's understandable. There's only so much room in the book. <laughs> you know, you looked at, you know, steps six and seven are a paragraph each. You know, they had to pick and choose what they wanted to use. And even in the later story, uh, editing, I'm sure, the same way. Uh, but it doesn't matter the disease because at the end of the day, it still comes down to finding a power greater than yourself with your problem. Page 45, you know, how to stay abstinent. And I'm also convinced, as it says in the book also, that that uh, failing to perfect and enlarge your spiritual life, in other words, using and working these steps uh, and the program, is the path to relapse. People I've known who've gone out after five, six, seven years invariably had stopped working the steps, you know, and tread tread water as they say or you know i heard i've heard the phrase coasting in program and somebody said once the only way you can coast on a bicycle is to go downhill and that was you know i've seen that um but you know all of this having to talk with the big book and all a lot of this is a bit of an academic exercise if you're in the middle of the allergy of the body and the obsession of the mind you know, understanding of the entire big book, the entire 12 and 12, and all of this is useless if you're eating, which was what was happening with me. I could coach a huge section of the big book while I was in my relapse. You know, and, it, and that is proof as much as anything that knowledge of our disease alone will not cure us. <clears throat> you know, a relapse, especially when it was somebody like me with a lot of time in program, I mean, it's a perfect example of those strange mental blank spots, in, and, I, and it was certainly that way with me. And uh, so, you know, there's a huge difference sometimes between, you know, the theoretical things in the big book and, and the practical of dealing with getting abstinent, staying abstinent. And to me, you know, the recovery from relapse involves the steps. Uh, but I, I sort of, I've said that I think when it's a person getting abstinent or coming out of relapse, especially in the beginning, 
the way that person approaches the first three steps is much different than someone like myself with long-term abstinence. You know, for me today, the first three steps are mostly about remembering I'm powerless over life and food in that order. But for people coming out of a relapse or getting abstinent, it's the other way around. It'd be really I need to press the idea of being powerless over the food and then life. Because it's an important thing. Because one of the things I, I wish people would say more, I think some people think it's being negative. I think it's just helping newcomers see the reality, is that we should be stressing once in a while that recovery from food addiction is hard. You know, this whole process we go through is hard. It's difficult. It's not difficult every day, especially the more time you have, but especially in the beginning. I really wish somebody would have said that to me. It would have made me feel a little, a little better. And, you know, uh, there's a lot of reasons that I could enumerate for hours about why I, I personally think my food addiction and was harder than my alcohol, uh, and I don't minimize my alcoholism. But, you know, there's differences that I think, just like I mentioned, that like for one thing, we have to eat. We have to take the tiger out of the cage. And I know people say, oh, well, alcoholics still have to drink. They just can't drink alcohol, which is definitely true. But I know I have had a lot of drinks since I got sober, and very little of them have made me really want to go out. But I have had abstinent meals when I was not in a fit spiritual condition where I wanted to keep going or I would be in a bad place and find myself standing in front of the refrigerator, you know, and I think the fact that it's so there and so immediate, not like you can put it away and not think about it is is part of why it's harder. It's also, you know, we're talking a substance that's with us from birth, you know, I don't care how bad an alcoholic addict you are, you're not doing it until your teens, but we are eating from birth. It represents so many things in to us in life, you know, mother, love, reward, good memories. It's also socially acceptable. Food is, I've, you know, gone to parties and somebody offered me a drink and I say I'm a recovering alcoholic and they're, oh my God, they stumble all over themselves. And I'm like, it's okay. But then a little while later, somebody will offer me a piece of cake and I go, no, I'm, I'm compulsive eater. I don't eat that. And then they'll be like, oh, come on, you can have a little. The food pushers don't understand. You turn on TV, it's all over the place. Food porn on TV. And you know, you know, you don't see at the end of any of those food porn commercials. You don't see "please eat responsibly." You know, people don't take this the same, as seriously as they do alcohol in the world. The other thing that's really hard is we are inundated every day as compulsive eaters with thousands of easier, softer ways out there. You know, I, I was personal friends with Roseanne, who started program and. She used to say, you know, uh, oh, I, I, I used to say when I started OA, I thought someday OA would be bigger than AA and how arrogant I must have been. And I remember saying, no, I don't think it is. I think it's very logical. There's way more compulsive eaters than there are alcoholics. The thing is that AA doesn't have a lot of competition. You know, we have it every day. You know, we can be standing with our abstinent food in line at the supermarket and look over at the, you know, the tabloids, and there's a thousand, eat as much as you want and still lose weight. And if you are in the disease, it is so enticing. We also want to minimize it. It's just food. Oh, my God. You know, uh, it, but we have a problem other people don't. Uh, the other thing about this disease that, that a lot of other addictive diseases don't have is that recovery itself comes with extra sets of problems sometimes. You know, you don't hear... People in AA saying, boy, I had, you know, getting sober caused me more problems. Well, 
you know, compulsive eaters, if you're a young woman and you're you're losing weight and getting attractive, all of a sudden you have a whole other set of things to consider. And I've seen it over the years of, of it being sometimes the cause of uh, people going back out. Uh, you know, these are things that make this disease harder, you know. Obviously, not to mention the most obvious, the soothing effects of food, you know, for many of us, uh, you know, carbs and sugar and all of that made us feel better. Like it says in the big book, people drink alcohol because they like the effects. Well, it's the same with the food. And and it just, it makes everything seem more benign. When you read in the big book, the thing is, is if we don't, you know, if we don't improve, we, we will, you know, we will surely die. It's really hard for us, many of us, to grasp and see that in the same way with the food as, as I know I did when I first became sober. But to me, the most difficult thing about this disease and what makes it harder than any of the other diseases is how it delivers the pain. You know, if there's a good thing to be said about alcoholism or drug addiction, it is a acute pain that slams you face down into the pavement. And if it will give you a moment of lucidity. You know, something happens. You wake up in jail. You wake up, you know, next to somebody you don't want to be. You end up in handcuffs. Something will happen that will make you go, oh, my God, what am I doing? Yet with food, it is a slow, chronic pain. It's a dull pain, and if you have a great brain, you keep making uh, excuses. You know, there's a famous story uh, about uh, scientists, and they can take a live frog and bring it toward a pan of boiling water, and the frog will sense it's being brought down toward this boiling water and start to thrash. It knows it's somewhere it really doesn't want to be. Well, that scientist can take the frog away from that pan of boiling water and put it in a pan of room temperature water and then slowly bring the heat up very slowly very slowly the frog will sit in a pan that it could jump out of at any time and die in a pan of boiling water because the water was heated slowly enough and to me that is the perfect analogy of our disease it is slow enough to allow our brains to constantly keep adjusting to constantly keep accepting that which was previously unacceptable you know, we, we, we say, well, I'll never get to 180 pounds, and then I'll, well, I'll never get to 200, I'll never get to this dress size. Uh, you, you keep looking at yourself in, in the mirror from the neck up. You start wearing expandable waist, you know, pants. Um, and that's the problem of this disease. It makes, makes me uncomfortable enough to know I should do something about it. It just doesn't make me uncomfortable enough sometimes to be willing to go to any lengths to get better. And that's why it becomes hard. Um, back to the concept of, of relapse with this nasty disease we have, uh, I look back and realize my main problem, I had two main problems when I was in that relapse. One was really not understanding the concept of powerlessness as it had to do with my food. And also, I didn't understand the disease itself and how it worked on me. Um, I would sit there at meetings, and again, good little student, I'd say, I'm powerless over food. And then I would go eat. And you know, and then I'd come back, and I'd sit in meetings and go, no, I'm powerless over food. And I'd go you know, relapse again. And I'd be, you know, I'm powerless, eat, powerless, eat. Well, how powerless did I really think I was in retrospect? 
you know, what was I thinking when I took that first compulsive bite? Was I saying, oh, the heck with OA, I'm leaving, I'm never coming back? No, I wasn't. What was back there in the back of my head, and I didn't even say it out loud to myself, was when I'm ready, I will come back and I will get abstinent again because I really didn't grasp that powerlessness the same the way I should have. I mean, I'll tell you how I have grasped powerlessness. I believe in my heart of hearts I am powerless over a bullet in a gun. And, you know, the perfect way I can show that is I've never wanted to take a gun and put it up to my head. And as I'm pulling the trigger, say, well, I'll start again on Monday. You know, I get I'm powerless and I can't do that. Yet with the food, you know, 14 years in, I couldn't grasp that. And why? In retrospect, it was because I had empirical evidence to the contrary. I had evidence that I was powerful over the food. And I mean, think about this. If you've relapsed and gotten abstinent over and over, you've got proof. Well, it's it's actually the illusion of proof that you're powerful over the food. You know, I knew if I broke my abstinence, I I would eventually be able to grind that train to a halt again. Why? I don't know. I might have to come back and go to 90 meetings in 90 days. I might have to go get a new sponsor. I might have to do all kinds of writing, all kinds of stuff. But I had done it before, and I knew if I did those things, eventually I would grind that train to a halt again. The trouble was, because I could do that, I was setting the next one up. The clock would tick the minute I had the food down that I was on my way out the door again. And so what I needed to change was how I thought about the powerlessness. I am powerful over the food in that small picture. But... I wasn't abstinent in any of those times. In retrospect, I look back now, I was on a long in and out, in and out, in and out cycle. And I was just on a bunch of in cycles, waiting for the next out cycle to begin. And what I really needed to do for me was to readjust my concept of powerlessness, because it didn't equate with the powerlessness I feel with my alcoholism. I'm one of those people that past that line where if if I have a drink, you know, forget it. You could have cops with tasers, you know, you know, you know, women, <laughs> you know, anything between me and it, I'm going to go get that second drink. But with food, it was different, you know. And to me, the most pertinent line that, that sums up my compulsive eating relapse experience, which for many of us, it's actually a relapse cycle, is the thing from the big book that says all of us felt the times that we were regaining control, but such intervals, usually brief, were inevitably followed by less control, which led in time to pitiful and incomprehensible demoralization. And that was definitely the case with me. You know, I needed to change concept of powerlessness. You know, when I first came in many years ago, one of the things you used to always hear was, we don't eat no matter what. You know, almost people pounding on the podium saying it. Well, I heard somebody put it in a much better way. They've said, if you're a compulsive eater and you've made food an option, it's always going to be the only option. You know, think about it. If you have a choice of going through some kind of emotional turmoil or eating a food that you like the taste of and that very often makes you feel better, at least momentarily, it's a no-brainer. You're always going to pick that choice. And for me, that's what my powerlessness had to become. Food could no longer be an option. I could not be an option in my emotion. It can be fuel. I can enjoy it. But it's not available as an option to my my feelings and things going on in my life. 
And like it's been said many times, if it's not an option, it's not a problem. You know, and in the case of these big book quotes and in other places, the idea in a lot of the big book is that that the uh, the ideas of addiction are smashed once you enter the rooms of a 12-step program. And I would contend that, especially in OA, that's not necessarily the case. These ideas aren't smashed. They become transformed. They become mutated. And now, if you're in a little bit of a relapse cycle and you're coming to meetings, my disease was using the 12-step program against me as a springboard to further slipping. You know, and that was because I didn't understand the disease and how it worked on me. And that's the second part. I didn't understand the powerless and I didn't understand the disease. You know, I had said for years, I I have a disease, just like I said, I was powerless. But I think deep inside, I really didn't believe it was a disease. I would sit there and think to myself, well, if you people, it makes you people feel better to call it a disease, sure, whatever. But I don't. I didn't believe it. Today, I absolutely get it. You know, and I'm one of these people with a good brain and had tend to to want to see proof and things like that. And, and you know, I mentioned earlier the idea that I I was one of those people who passed that invisible line with alcohol, and it's in the big book and talks about we used to be able to take or take it or leave it, and now we can't. Well, scientists have proven that. This and actual enzyme in the human body that gets burnt out and uh, as a result of heavy alcohol abuse and it's the same thing with food you know early on in food programs the idea of carbs and sugar being a, a thing that made it a lot harder to stay abstinent well they find out now about serotonin and dopamine and things like that so i really have a much better gut level belief this is a disease and i have a disease i don't have to make a moral thing out of it. Now, the one thing about my disease, just like people who have diabetes, I have to take my medicine, which is meetings, program, the steps, and all that. Um, you know, and for me, grasping it's a disease helps a lot. I mean, you know, we we all talk about, we all have known somebody with cancer. We've all known somebody who's battled cancer. And we know we would never think to say to them, "Oh, I can't believe you got cancer. How can you be so stupid?" You know. And we certainly wouldn't if they have, if they have beaten cancer and gone into remission and then it came back. You would never say to them, "Oh, I can't believe you're so dumb as to get cancer again. Didn't you learn the first time?" Yet we will hold on to that ourselves with our relapse cycle and feel we were idiots for relapsing again. You know, co- uh, you know, compulsive overeating is a cognitive disease. It it affects our decision making, which makes it harder to grasp than than cancer. Yet, you know, if you think about it, uh, people who have cancer are growing it in their bodies. They are making the cancer, but we all get that it's an outside thing that they don't want in their body. But it's the same with us. We don't want to be compulsive eating. You know, and the other thing that makes this disease even harder than cancer in some ways is, you know, imagine if one of cancer's symptoms was denial, that it told the person having cancer, oh, don't go get chemo, you don't need chemo, you don't need radiation, don't listen to those doctors. Well, that's what our disease does to us. Don't listen, don't worry about program. And that's, to me, I have come to, to, this is just a personal thing, I've come to believe that my disease, the voice of my disease, is like the world's best salesman. You know, if you think about uh, somebody you know who's a salesman, and they're a good salesman, you know, they're likable, they're friendly, 
you know, they uh, are smooth and they've got a, they're confident in their product. They're confident they like their product. They know that you like the product, you know, because, you know, that's part of the disease. And, and imagine how hard it is to stay away from that kind of a salesman, which is what my disease is. Well, imagine how much exponentially harder it would be if that salesman uh, could read your mind. Well, that's what our disease can do, you know. No matter what you're going to say to say no to your salesman, you know, the voice of the disease telling you to go eat, it's got the answer. Oh, no, don't worry. Worry about that tomorrow. Or you can do a little of this. You can do a little of that. And that's what makes this so hard. That salesman is there, and that salesman is also there 24-7. That salesman doesn't clock out. That salesman doesn't go home. It's always sitting there trying to make the sale. Now, you know, years in, it doesn't happen as much, but I'll be standing in line to get a coffee and they'll be seeing something there and go, oh, look at that. I should have one of those. And, you know, luckily you get a certain amount of time. You you hear that and you turn to the salesman and go, well, thanks for sharing, but no, I'm going to stick to my abstinent program today. But that's one of the things that we have to deal with is that constant salesman trying to make the sale. But the most evil thing to me about this salesman is that if that salesman keeps pounding away on me to make the sale of going and eating and breaking my abstinence, if it does make the sale and I do go get into the food, it puts its arm around me and says, hey, you know what? This was your idea. You know, it wasn't my idea in retrospect. You know, I'll give you an example. Uh, right near the end of my relapse, uh, I, you know, I'm I'm in OA. I'm going to five meetings a week. I have a sponsor. I am sponsoring. I am a delegate to my inner group. I am, the, and I'm the secretary of this large meeting called Artists in Abstinence. And I, obviously, I shouldn't have been a sponsor. I shouldn't have been secretary, but that's for another talk. But I would leave that big meeting I was secretary of and stop at the donut shop on the way home and be getting stuff. And as I'm leaving the donut shop, I remember thinking, why am I doing this? I'm I'm not sentenced to OA. I don't have to go to OA. And that was that incomprehensible demoralization because I didn't get it. The reality was I didn't want to eat. I don't want to eat compulsively or I wouldn't have been doing all those things. I don't want to eat compulsively today. None of us, I think if you're listening to this right now, you in your heart of heart, core of cores, don't want to be compulsive eating, or you wouldn't be here. You, Everybody's got something better to do. But we don't want to eat, but at the exact moment of impulse, our disease convinces us this was our idea. And for me, I needed to change how I thought of that. I needed to somehow put a face on my disease, to see it as something external, that I have to fight against. Just like people with cancer, even though those cancer cells are growing in their body, they need to see them as something attacking them. And that's that's what I needed to do for my disease. And it's hard because it's hard to distinguish in some respects. You know, how how it sounds, it sounds like every other, you know, little voice in my head. You know, and not saying I'm here voices, but you know, you're driving down the street and you, you say, Oh, I gotta take a left at this light and oh I gotta stop at this stop sign and oh i got to go into this convenience store and buy a bunch of ice cream and go home and binge wait a minute (laughs) that last one doesn't sound right and that's the problem is that if my disease sounded different if it sounded like darth vader and said go eat it would be really easy oh that's my disease but it isn't 
I have to distinguish what it's saying rather than how it's saying it and realize when it's not congruent with what my real beliefs are, that I want to be abstinent, I want to be happy, joyous, and free. I want all those promises that the big book promises me. But I need to realize you know, that that's the disease talking. And the thing that was the most important thing I wish I'd understood during my relapse was this, that my disease, when I was in my relapse, got up every day with only one job to do. And its job was this, to get me to kick the can down the road one more day on actually putting the food down. Because it knew if it could convince me today I didn't need to put the food down, it could probably convince me again tomorrow. And it used all of my intelligence, used all that I knew about program against me. You know, perfectly good program slogans and thoughts. I was totally the master of program BS about because I couldn't see how my disease was working me like a puppet. You know, I'd be at meetings going, well, I'm going to work on the spiritual part, you know. Well, it's a perfectly good program concept to work on the spiritual part once you've got the food down. But my disease was trying to convince me to make it something instead, you know. Or, well, I'm going to work on the steps first, you know. Well, you know, I've read that big book forwards and backwards, I don't know how many times, and there's nowhere in there where it says or intimates in any way, work these steps and then you will stop drinking. No, it's an unspoken thing that, you know, I needed to do that first. And that's where, going back to what I was saying, the theoretical versus the practical, you know, I'm going to mostly talk about practical here today, is that all of this is, all those wonderful things in the big book are of no use if I'm eating, you know. I would come in and I remember I went through this cycle of saying, well, I'm not going to beat myself. I ate last night, but I'm not going to beat myself up. And then I'd show up at the next meeting. Well, I ate again last night, but I'm not going to beat myself up. And uh, an old timer came up to me and she said, you know, have you ever considered that eating last night was beating yourself up? You know, and she really nailed it on that. You know, it's really true. I... I can't knowingly do something that's self-destructive, which is eating, and then go stand in front of the mirror and say, you're a good person, gosh darn it, because if I really believed I was a good person, I wouldn't have gone and eaten. You know, uh, and again, these, the, the program just had me like a puppet. I mean, uh, the disease had me like a puppet. You know, I remember one of my favorites, well, I'm praying for the willingness. I'm praying for the willingness. You know, uh, which is absolutely true. You do have to be willing. But again, that's my disease trying to get me to kick the can down the road. Because if I just say I'm praying for the willingness, I don't actually have to do anything. I can just sit there and talk the talk. You know, and I remember I was at a, a convention once and a speaker said, uh, she said, you know, when it comes to addiction, willingness is highly overrated. <laughs> you know, pain is way more important. And I realized it's true. I, I couldn't will willingness. I couldn't will or hope that God would just remove it. I mean, this is, it, you know, God will be the one who removes it in the end, but it was my disease trying to use that concept as a stalling tactic. And, and of course, my, the all-time uh, program BS for me was I would say, I'm redefining my abstinence, you know. And I'd be redefining to whatever I did, so therefore I could say I was absent no matter what crazy thing I was doing. And it every once in a while I have things pop into my head, and one of the things that, that I really believe is my higher power, because not 
it it's just it's something that was foreign. And I, I remember, I don't know how many times I said, I'm redefining my abstinence. Finally, the voice came, no, you've broken your abstinence. You know, you're just redefining your honesty. And it was really true. I needed to realize my disease is just trying to get me to not put the food down. And so between those two things, the powerlessness and the concept of what is my disease and what's it trying to do to me, I, you know, I felt at that point I'd seen step one. You know, Now I needed a power greater than myself to help me with that problem. You know, And you know, the good news, as it says in the AA 12 and 12, is the hoop that you have to jump through is a lot wider than you think. Uh, for me, it really helped to go through some of that crazy stuff because then I could look at all those crazy excuses I kept throwing, at, you know, as to why I shouldn't put the food down with 15, 14 years in the program, mind you, and realize, wow, in terms of the food, I'm insane. I really am. And, you know, that's the thing that makes this hard as well. It's a very specific type of insanity. You know, it's not like, it, you know, if if, my, if as a result of some of this, this disease, you know, I found myself standing out in the middle of the street naked or starting to talk in tongues or something strange like that, then I'd go, wow, I, I'm nuts. I, I better I better trust somebody else on these on this stuff. But so much of my brain is so highly functional in so many areas. Lots of people I know in OA are incredibly successful in so many other areas and we can use our brains in so many ways it just is useless when it comes to our disease you know and thus you know i'm looking headlong at that second step you know having realized i'm powerless and insane you know now i've got the problem of how do i get better you know and the program and the book tells me you know i need a power greater than myself you know to achieve that recovery and, and in a lot of ways, I love to reverse the order of step two and say, hey, I'm insane. I need help because <laughs> that's really sort of how it went for me. I'm powerless. I'm nuts. I need help. Well, let me talk a little about higher power and higher powers. And I like to talk about I have – I believe in levels of higher powers, plural. I say to newcomers and atheists who have problems – I really believe this program, it's, it's less about what exactly you believe in in a higher power than it is that you really get at a gut level that you are a lesser power. And I needed to really get that. I am a lesser power. You know, it was told to me when I first came in, the only thing you ought to understand about God is there is one and it's not you. And I appreciate the grounded out version of a higher power that I learned in my first 12-step program, God, myself, and another human being. And in fact, when it came to getting out of that relapse, another human being or beings, and to be real, it was way more important. You know, We have a saying out here in L.A. and maybe in your areas that the, the saying is it's not about the food unless it's about the food, and then it's all about the food until it's not about the food. You know, and that meaning first things first. When I was coming out of my relapse, I needed a sponsor more than I needed a connection with a higher power. Now, I know today the sponsor was a connection, a bridge to my higher power, but right then I needed that. We had a great old-timer out here, Al Sines, who's got 40 years in AA, OA and over 50 in AA, and he's a circuit speaker in AA. And he says, the problem in OA is there's a lot of people who found God before they found a food plan. 
you know, and uh, I got to agree. It's again, it's about letting the disease kick the can down the road another day. Uh, I'm a big believer in the practical part of this program. You know, I, you know, you've many of you have heard the phrase OA without the steps is just a diet. And I agree. But I always say OA without a food plan has a name, too. It's called Al-Anon. You know, Al-Anon's a wonderful program to help integrate the steps into your life and give you a much better life, but it's not going to help me with my disease. And for that, I need, I, need, I need help with that, and I need fellow compulsive eaters. And the reason is because I can't just go commune with God while I'm in my disease or I'm in a relapse. I can't go off because I'll go off and commune with God and come back convinced that God told me chocolate was a vegetable. You know, but then I call my sponsor and he's like, eh, not for today, you know, because you see, here's the problem I have. I can't tell what's the voice of God and what's the voice of my disease just doing, you know, a really good God impression. You know, I need grounded out spirituality, grounded out with, you know, human beings. I definitely believe this is a program uh, that was a gift from our higher power. I heard somebody say once the steps were God's gift to the 20th century, and, and I believe that. But for me, the key is this. It's the lifeboat that was sent by my higher power. I still have to get in it and row. I can't just sit there and say, I'm powerless, you know. Well, there's a big difference between powerlessness and helplessness, you know. I, after 34 years in program, I have known Catholic priests, Protestant ministers, rabbis, cantors, Catholic nuns that are in this program. If conscious contact alone with a higher power was all that was needed, they would never have ended up here. But they needed a rowboat too, just like I did. You know, because people were dying of alcoholism without any hope of recovery until 1935. People were dying of compulsive eating until 1960. You know, no matter what your belief in a higher power is, I bet you believe it's been around since before 1935, and yet people were dying. And I believe that my higher power brought this answer in the form of the 12 steps, the big book, the 12 and 12, the program. And I tell people who are atheists, even if you can't believe in a higher power as such, you can believe in those things, the big book, the 12 steps, because you can see them with your own eyes, and you can see recovery happening. And so, you know, what, what's the key? I believe you've got to be willing to roll up your sleeves and firstly surrender. You know, I love Harlan says surrender is just, you know, going over to the winning side. And I believe that. And, and it was so hard for me to grasp what this stuff meant when I was new. You know, I'd hear the phrase turn it over and I'm like, well, what does that mean? <laughs> you know, I used to joke if you turn something over twice, it's right side up again, you know. But for me, I had to turn I, – I sort of flipped it around. For me, turning it over, if I turn it or flip it around, I make it about removing the blockage of self-will, meaning get out of the way. You know, And I tell newcomers, here, just go find a sponsor and be willing to take direction. You know, uh, When I first came in, I was told, you know, you're a smart person, but your own best thinking got you where you were when you dragged yourself in here the first time. And, and I needed to be willing to turn um, you know, my will and my life over to higher power. And in the beginning, that can just be the program. And in a lot of ways, it should be. In other words, I'm not saying you have to submit to a, a sponsor as God, but keep an open mind to things that are told to you. I mean, I always joke, I say, some of the stupidest things that were ever said to me were said to me by sponsors. 
And what I mean by that is this. So I'd, I'd hear – my sponsor would say something, and I'd hang up the phone and look and go, that's the stupidest damn thing I ever heard. But you know, I came in through a program that told me, gripe and moan, but do it anyway. And I learned that, and I got that down. So I would gripe. I remember a sponsor saying, you gripe all you want. Just do what I tell you. And I would do this really stupid thing that my sponsor told me to do. And as soon as I was finished it, I'd look back and go, oh, my God. I'd like slap myself in the forehead and go, that's exactly what I needed to do. But luckily, I had gotten something of the training of doing what I'm told. And, and as a result, I took my diseased brain out of the decision-making. And so in a lot of ways, it was a real-world example of steps one, two, and three. Now, that's not to say if your sponsor tells you something that seems beyond the re- bounds of reasonableness, you know, you know, go talk to another, another you know, member and, and see if it makes sense. But, you know, for me, I needed to do that. That was the real-world version of steps one, two, and three for me. Um, uh, I'll mention a couple other little things uh, that helped in terms of relapse. You know, uh, talk about tools for a minute. And I know a lot of people poo-poo the tools. And I, I always joke that my first OA experience, I, I used the tools. And the second one, I used the steps. And that's the one that stuck. stuck. But I think some tools, in addition to working the steps, can sometimes be a immense help. I mean, we're talking practical stuff here now, not theoretical. Um and especially with new sponsees, I talk about a food plan, you know, and um, I, I, you know, when I'm asked about specifics, I say, realize my disease loves ambiguity. It wants me to stay as nebulous as I can, because then this salesman can get his foot in the door again. You know, if the, you know, it isn't like people in AA don't have slips. I, you know, all the time people have slips in AA, but you know, when they've had a slip, they know it. I have known people in OA that were knee-deep in a slip, and they didn't even realize it because they had such a nebulous food plan that they didn't realize it until they were knee-deep in it. I personally need a warning track. I need to know when I'm headed for trouble. But I tell sponsees, you know, your food plan needs to be strong, but it shouldn't be brittle. You know, you think of something that's brittle. When it breaks, it smashes into a thousand pieces. I needed a strong food plan, and the key to that was to work it out with another human being. I, you know, um, I need somebody who won't allow me to negotiate with my disease. We have an old timer out here who says, you know, when it, you can't negotiate with your disease, it's always going to win, and it's true. And when I talk about with sponsees about working on a food plan, I, I always say it's it's like standing astride a, a steeply pitched roof. Imagine you, you're on top of a house, and it's like one of those houses with like a Swiss chalet, so it's very steep in either direction. And you can fall off in either direction. And the one way you can fall off in a way is to say, well, I'm not going to exactly figure out this or that. And, and the next thing you know, you're, you're, you're rolling down one side of the roof because you don't have any kind of borders on your food, and you can fall off that way. But you can also fall off the other way, which is to say, oh, I had a pea I shouldn't have. I'm not perfect anymore. Oh, what the heck, I might as well have a cake. <laughs> you know, We have a lady out here in L.A. named Annette who says uh, compuls- uh, that perfection is the conjoined twin of compulsive eating. And I think it's true. It's it's another way my disease can find a way in by backing up a step. And if I'm not perfect, then, then it can get me to eat. It'll figure out any one of those ways to get me to eat. 
And so for me, I need to have a little bit more of a real-world thing on, on my food. I'm a great believer in that concept of the red light, yellow light, green light foods things. Uh, you know, and I always joke, I say, oh, look, I know what my red light foods are and I know what my green light foods are. And the problem is those yellow light foods, because 90 percent of those yellow light foods are actually probably red light foods. I should be pu- putting on my red light list. And to use the traffic light analogy, you know, those yellow light foods are me hitting the gas trying to get through the uh, the light before it turns red. Uh and so when I work with sponsees, you know, we, the the thing is always brought out to you. Do you start your food plan, you know, tight or loose, you know? And I can tell you, I hear people say, well, you know, I, I started out real loose abstinence and it got narrower. You know, and I hear people say the road gets narrower. In my personal experience, it doesn't happen often. I've worked with a lot of sponsees and I found the ones that wanted to start off really loose, never got narrower. And, and and if you think about it, it's really just the, ne- the disease wanting to continue to negotiate. I find when you're really ready, when you're ready to surrender, you, you know, you're at your point of most surrender. That's when you work out a food plan. You know, when I first came in, you used to always hear, when in doubt, leave it out. And realize this is not forever, but for today and until you work out with your sponsee to change it. Because I went through those those, you know, having the kind of food plan Henry VIII could follow, and in which case, what have I got? I got a lifeboat that I've I've drilled holes in the bottom of the boat so that I can I can feel better, you know. And I really it helped me immensely to really tighten up my food, especially in the beginning. I a personal thing for me, not program, is I found when I got rid of carbs, I was a lot less hungry between meals. But you know, it still comes down to food plan is what you hopefully and a sponsor work out you know and i had a sponsor who used to say whenever we want to change my food plan it was fine but whatever we decide stays that way for 30 days just i don't become you know willy-nilly oh i want this now i want that and i think the other important thing i i like to mention is that oa has a definition of abstinence and we read this at, at a couple of our meetings here in L.A., and I wish everybody would because there is a definition of abstinence. And let me read it. It says, abstinence in Overeaters Anonymous is the action of refraining from compulsive eating and compulsive food behaviors while working towards or maintaining a healthy body weight. Spiritual, emotional, and physical recovery is the result of living the Overeaters Anonymous 12-step program. And... I'm surprised at how many people don't know that, that there is a definition of abstinence. I tell my sponsees, you can tell me what your food plan is. You can tell me what your program is, but you can't tell me what your, quote, abstinence is any more than you can tell me what your steps are. That is already decided by by Overeaters Anonymous. And I think it's so important that a few years ago, they started to get back to where we were in the beginning of saying, hey, we have to consider weight, you, you know, to be 300 pounds and maintaining it and calling yourself abstinent or gaining weight and calling yourself abstinent. Not to say people don't gain a little weight up and down at any given month, but it's – and I believe what happened was people said we need to start helping people get abstinent, not help them collude in their denial and calling themselves abstinent. You know, again, I I mentioned I was good friends with Roseanne, and she used to say over and over, I didn't start OA to be a fat and happy club, you know. 
you know, somebody once said, take the creativity out of your food and put it in your life where it belongs, you know. And and I'm a great believer in that. And I talk to sponsees and just, again, real world stuff. I have a sponsee come in and he's he's 300 pounds. And then we do a food plan and he's losing a pound a week. I'm like, you know, or a pound a month. I'm like, you know, you're never going to get there. If you want to be 150 pounds, you eat what a 150 pound person eats. You know, I mean, at the end of the day, as I've, I've said, you can get what you want or you can do what you want. You know, or you can do what you want or get what you want, you know, and realizing that, that you can never be sure your disease isn't the one trying to make the decisions. And for me, since denial is such a big part of this disease, I am a great believer in scales, you know, and I call them my den- denial busters. You know, I, I a weight scale and a food scale. And I'm not nuts about this, but. I believe uh, this is just what I had gotten uh, in another program at one point of of weighing once a month until you get within a little bit of goal weight and then weighing once a week. I get on every Saturday morning, check my weight. And the reason is because I can – I have a disease of denial. I can tell myself everything's going great. Everything's wonderful. Then I get on the scale and I'm up 10 pounds. Well, wait a minute. You know, at that point, you got reality hitting you in the face. You either have to convince yourself that somehow gravity has stopped being a constant, or you got to say, "Hey, something's going on here. Something going on with my food." And it's the same with uh, food scales. I I don't weigh in restaurants. I haven't done that much in a while, but I need to know, you know, how much because I can look at a. I can go to one of those those restaurants that have these humongous steaks and look at it and go, "Yeah, that's four ounces," you know. Uh, and I can't. I I and I'm after many years. I can I can pretty much nail five ounces, which is what I usually eat of protein, pretty easily. But that's just me. But again, these are just sort of real world things that that I really believe. And I tell sponsees to talk about um, coming up with a little bit of an action plan. Even though I don't really like the action plan thing. Uh, uh, the idea of food plan, you know, we all talk about food plan. Well, it is a plan, you know, and as they say, you know, failing to plan is planning to fail. I want my sponsees to be thinking ahead of time. Unfortunately, one of the drawbacks to trying to be abstinent is you have to think about things ahead. Otherwise, this is another way my disease gets in. It gets me to not think about something and oops, all of a sudden I got to think about eating. Oh, gee, I'm stuck having to eat something that I probably shouldn't. So I like to try and, you know, think um think of these things at a time. Um, and I also want my sponsees to know what to do when the stuff hits the fan. You know, in the early days, I used to have a list of phone numbers in my wallet. Uh, now, I luckily, I have a phone. They're all there. And I try and talk to sponsees about going to meet people and, and sort of initiating, hey, I'd like to have you as <clears throat> one of my outreach calls. Is that okay? And, and, and you know, this way there's a face to a name. They don't feel as... Uh, uh, strange about making a call. And I also tell them, try and find people that are late night people and then get some others that are early morning people. Because my disease, if I, I have this urge to eat, is going to want to tell me, oh, don't call anybody. You're going to bother them. And, and this way, I know I I do have people I can do that for. And I tell my sponsees to do that. Um, other little things. Um, I'm a great believer in exercise. This is just a personal thing. I don't think it should be a tool. I've been in a couple of conferences where they tried to introduce that, and I think it gets away from our primary purpose. But i got to tell you, I think I'm doing my part, and it's a thank you to my higher power 
to stay healthy and do exercise. I was given this gift of abstinence. And you know, if somebody gives you a car for free, the least you can do is change the oil. And for me, that is trying to stay healthy, you know, because I know people who didn't get it, you know. I uh, uh, I know numerous people who are dead. I've had two sponsees that died in this program. One one died in a fire because he was too big to get out. And I've known other people. And the other thing about those people is none of them had hadn't gotten the program. They had it and they gave it away. And that's another thing I remember. You know, I can't get abstinent again. God will or will not give me that gift again if I give it away. But I am the only one who's going to give it away. My higher power is never going to take it away. And for me, one of the things I can do to keep myself from ever thinking of giving it away is having as many impediments between me and that first compulsive bite as I need. That phrase used to be used so much more years ago, the first compulsive bite. And I think it's an important thing. A couple little quick things before we wrap up. Um, I tell sponsees... Meetings, 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 you know, it's about keeping it green to go to meetings either face-to-face if you can, uh, otherwise phone meetings. As I heard some lady say once, it's not like I'm a slow learner, I'm a quick forgetter. You know, I heard somebody say, you know, if you don't go to meetings, you don't find out what happens to people who don't go to meetings, you know. And, And for me, at this amount of time in program, it's about giving back, paying it forward, you know. In the big book, in Dr. Bob's Nightmare, near the end of his story, he talks about why he goes to meetings after the amount of time he had. And he says, I go to meetings, one, a sense of duty. Two, it's a pleasure. Three, because in doing so, I am paying my debt to the man who took the time to pass it on to me. And four, because every time I do it, I take out a little more insurance for myself against a possible slip. You know, And it's so important. And the meeting, the way I go to meetings now is a lot different than when I was doing before, before I really got seriously absent. One of the things my first 12-step sponsor said that was so important for me was he said, 12-step meetings are not group therapy. You know, some guy went on one time and he said, John, people didn't get in the car to go to the meeting to say, gee, I want to hear what John has to say. <laughs> you know, he says, listen to what's in the preamble. We're here to share experience, strength, and hope. And 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 I get that today. That's not to say you don't go through an arc of recovery because there's nothing more wonderful than to come into the program and hear people doing things with food. You thought you were the only ones. You're the only one I thought that took white bread and rolled it up into a ball of dough and ate it. No, it turns out just about everybody I know in a way has done that. And so it's, it is good to have that and to talk about that, but then to pivot into the steps is so important. You know, as I used to hear, take your mess to your sponsor and your message to the meetings, you know, and, you know, when I hear people talk about, oh, I, I, I only want positive pitches, I, I always said, I can hear any pitch, no matter what it has to say, and it's a positive pitch if it ends with, but I didn't eat over it. You know, there is a group strength that comes out in meetings. If you, you hear people going through really bad stuff and they're not eating over it, it helps. It really does. And then also by going to meetings, you ground out your problems because you sit alone by yourself because this is a disease of isolation. Your problems become huge. That used to happen to me, you know. And uh, the other thing I tell sponsees is is just be careful what you hear in meetings because OA is the most democratic organization I've ever been in. Everybody gets three minutes no matter where they are. Even in AA, if they sense you've been drinking, you're going to sort of be told to sit down and listen. Uh, In OA, 
nothing. Three minutes, it's all yours. And the trouble with that is, is that if you're in a bad headspace or you're in the middle of a relapse, you can get validated by somebody else who's in the same place who's up there sharing. And just because two people are thinking the same thing doesn't mean it's right. It just means you got two crazy people, and that's what it was happening during my relapse. Um, I'm not going to spend any more time on on various tools other than to say, you know, they're important to help get and and get abstinent. But then as soon as you've got that together, I cannot stress do not delay to get into the steps. Don't delay a fourth step. I heard somebody recently, well, I'm going to hopefully get to my fourth step by next year. I'm like, really? You know, I tell sponsees, listen, it says a fearless and thorough moral inventory. It doesn't say write a Russian novel, <laughs> you know, and I tell them, uh, you know, it's it's if you're going to be around, you'll probably be doing more than one, but let's get it out as much as possible because remember, resentments are the number one offender. They will make you eat again, you know, and it's so much of this for me in the program is about becoming serene and becoming happy in life. I remember I was talking to somebody about a conflict once, and this old-timer said, when it comes to conflict, there's one of two situations. You're either right or you're wrong, and if you're right, you have no need to be angry. If you're wrong, you have no right to be angry. And I and that has helped so much. You know, the whole idea that resentments are taking poison and waiting for the other guy to die, it's it's so true, you know. Like it says in the book, we have ceased fighting anything and anyone. And I do that I, I mean and I do it now because I want to, but in the beginning it was not necessarily for Gandhi like reasons, but because I wanted serenity and I wanted to get better. And then moving after having done the fourth and fifth the sixth and seventh for me, day in and day out now, are, are all about how to keep my disease at bay. The character defects, my character defects, are how my disease is going to get back in. You know, it's going to get back in through those. I actually don't like the phrase character defects. I think it tends to be a little, it, it, it folds in a little judgment. I think of them as defense mechanisms. These were things that obviously worked for us at one point or we wouldn't have done them. We weren't dumb. But now they're working against us, and I need to change them. And for me, the two biggest groups of character defects, just to use the usual phrase, is is narcissism or self-centeredness, as it says in the big book, and immaturity. You know, self-centeredness is the you know the root, and and immaturity because you know one of the things about being self-centered, if I am, I'm not teachable. You know, I'm special. I don't have to listen to you because I know better. Well. You know, I've heard it said, uh, intelligent people learn from their mistakes, but wise people learn from other people's mistakes. And and that's what I'm trying to learn, do now is to not have to make mistakes I learn from, but to be able to say, wow, if that can happen to them, it can happen to me. Like the people I mentioned that went out and are dead now, that can happen to me. They weren't any – this one guy, Murray – you know, there's things on the moon that Murray put on the moon because he was an, an engineer, brilliant guy, and he's dead as a result of this disease. And at the end, just the end of the thing is, is you know, if you boil the whole program, in my opinion, down to three phrases, it's it's the serenity prayer, isn't it? You know, the you know, accepting the things you can't change, the courage to change the things you can't uh, can, and, and and the wisdom to know the difference. Of course, that's the big gotcha. And my old sponsor used to like grab the skin on the back of his hand and point to it and say, here, here's the difference right there, kid. Everything from the skin in, things you can change. Everything from the skin out, things you can't change. You know, and for the most part, he's right. You know, I can change me. I can change my reactions to everything in the world. 
You know, it's nobody gets uh, nobody gets me mad. I get me mad. Um, the other thing I learned from sponsors is I had a great sponsor who said once, "Lose the word why from your your vocabulary. It's the most useless word in the vocabulary." Because think of it, when, why are you asking why? Because you don't like how something went. So if you do get why answered the way you want, which is like point zero 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 two percent of the time, where are you? You're exactly the same place. But when you get why, don't get why answered the way you want, you're frustrated because life isn't fair. And he said, just lose why and deal with the problem. Don't spend a lot of time asking why. And the great thing that happened to me over the last few years, and, and it took a while, is I really began to get that the big book and all the things that are written in there in the 12 and 12, these things are ideals. These are ideals toward which we move every day. And on any given day, we fall short. We fall way short. And it used to, I used to beat myself up because, oh, I got this amount of time in program. And, you know, Harlan, my buddy Harlan says, you know, no matter how hard we work, we don't rise above the level of human being. And, and I realize today I can, I can stop beating myself up. You know, one of my great favorite uh, parts of the big book is in on, on acceptance, uh, the old Dr. Alcoholic Addict chapter. And we've all heard the uh, acceptance paragraph, but I always love the paragraph right after that. That's that. And it has this this sentence in it. It says, when I criticize me or you, I am criticizing God's handiwork. I'm saying I know better than God. And, you know, I um, I heard, I said that for years because judgmental was a big part of my, uh, my problem. But I realized I would always just read it. When I criticize you, I'm criticizing God's handiwork. But that's not what it says. It says when I'm criticizing me or you, I'm saying I know better than God. And I have to realize... I'm exactly the person I'm supposed to be today. I want to be better. I'm trying to be better, but it's okay, you know. And somebody said to me once, you know, never talk to to yourself any worse than you would talk to any child you love and care about, you know. And um, and that's about it. I want to just give you a couple of quotes, some of my favorite little program things I've heard over the years, you know. Uh, and then uh, I'll wrap it up. Uh, I judge myself based on my attention intentions while others judge me by my actions what other people think of me is none of my business change isn't painful resistance to change is painful and if i focus on the problem the problem increases if i focus on the answer the answer increases also from the big book uh while faith without works is dead plans without action is fantasy um Somebody said recently, if you have a problem that can be solved by writing a check, you don't have a problem. Now, that's easy to say, obviously, if you have the money. But I also realized so many times I had things I could have taken care of a lot easier, except I was being cheap. <laughs> the other thing is nobody ever started their abstinence on a tomorrow. All those people in my meetings that I see with 20, 30, 40 years, they all started on it today. You know, And lady from named Chris P. down in Orange County California has two of my favorites. One is the shortest distance to insanity is through comparison. Yeah, I always compare myself unfavorably. I never look at the other way around. And the other one she says is I may not be much, but I'm all I think about. <laughs> so anyway, that's about it. I'll leave, I always like to leave uh, with the uh, line from that classically profound and philosophical movie, uh, the Muppet movie, which says, life is a movie, write your own ending. 
Anyway, thanks for letting me share. John, thank you so much for your beautiful presentation this morning. It was so thorough and full of your personal insights and specific examples. Thank you so much for sharing your understanding and experience with relapse. Thank you very much. John Kay's contact information will be given at the conclusion of this recording, so stay tuned. And now we're going to transition into questions and answers. So if you have a question for John, you want to press star 1 to unmute and identify yourself, please. Hi, Leah. This is Mary Mary H., California. I hear Mary Lee. Who else did I hear? Mary Um, H. I'm in New York. Kathleen in New York. Kathleen in New York. Yeah. Okay, I got Mary Lee. I got Mary H. I hear Kathleen. Who am I missing? Carol G. Carol G. Okay, and we'll get the rest. All right, let's start with Mary Lee, please. Go ahead, Mary Lee. Oh, good morning. Sorry. <laughs> um, uh, I, I'm thinking of you um, when you did your comic act back in Virginia Beach, and I'm still laughing about showing pictures on a first date. Um, could you talk a little bit about what kind of writing you do, if you sure. do any writing? Um, I do. I used to do a lot more. My, my, my old sponsor used to have me write longhand, which I just – I it's really hard because my brain works so fast that my – I would I, I, when he would have me write on the steps, and I couldn't. My hand couldn't keep up with my brain, and I never remember writing this stuff. And then I'd go to read it to him, and you couldn't read it because it was so bad. But um, I have have over the years written in different ways on on things, and I work with sponsees on that, uh, and will very often take a chunk of the big book and just write on it. And you know, I don't know how you feel about it, but there's there's large parts of the of uh, the big book that. You know, there isn't much, but boy, there are paragraphs in the big book where every line is dense, and sometimes we'll take those and, you know, split apart parts of how it works or uh, more about alcoholism, literally almost go line by line and write our thoughts on them. The other thing I also tell sponsees is is that sometimes uh, that are having problems, writing just what I call freeform writing helps sometimes. Uh, there was an outside book that I won't mention, but they used to have this thing where you, you wrote three uh, three pages every morning, and they were you would just start writing. You'd write, you know, oh, this is dumb. I don't want to write. I don't want to write. You know, I'd literally have I don't want to write, uh, and then I'd well, you know, what's and, and it would be about sometimes generalized anxiety that I couldn't put my finger on where my problem was because I I you know I sort of got raised with not being in great contact with my emotions sometimes. So I'd be writing, well, I don't know why I'm anxious. I don't know. Well, so-and-so said this, but I don't think that's a big thing. And then I'd write, well, if it's not a big thing, why are you mentioning it? And what would happen is I would start pulling on that thread, almost like you you pull on a thread that's on the on the corner of your shoulder, and the next thing you know, you you know your your sleeve has fallen off. And that a lot of times that's a really good way to get at what's really bothering you. Because sometimes I have so many baffles. I got raised in a household where they would say to me, it's stupid to feel that way. You shouldn't feel that way. Well, you know what? You feel the way you feel. And sometimes what comes out is a five-year-old. But I would spend a lot of time trying to intellectually override that and say, it's stupid to feel that way. I don't feel that way when I did feel that way. And 
and by doing that kind of thing, I can get that out. And, and sometimes my, you know, my, my inner, I, I hate to use a hackneyed phrase, my inner child, but there's a little part part of me that that does have to let the little little child whine. And then my, you know, I love this a great phrase somebody said once. So, you know, I didn't come in the program to get in touch with my inner child. I came into the program to get in touch with my inner adult. <laughs> and uh, but there is a part that that helps me get that stuff out because I'm not always in the best contact with my emotion. And by, by doing freeform writing, I, I get better in touch. I hope, hope that helped. Thanks, Mary Lee. And Mary H., your turn. Hi, my name is Mary H. I'm a recovered compulsive overeater from Northern California. Hi, John. Thank you so Hi. much. Loved hearing everything, and I'm going to listen to it again. My question is short. The answer is probably long. Um, my question is, um, could you please share your step two and how you came to believe the the spiritual experience oh, part? Okay, sure. I'd love to Thanks, do that. Um, I mentioned when I first came to AA because I have, you know, I try to stick to OA, but certain things happen in certain order. Well, I came in and, and uh, I I was arguing because I came from a very dogmatic religion. In fact, they invented the word dogma. Uh, dogmatic religion and I wanted nothing to do with the higher power that I was given because I just it just too many things were wrong. And uh I uh, I came in and I'm talking to this guy who became my first sponsor and I'm like, I can't be part of this religious program because and he says it's not religious, it's spiritual and I'm like, Oh, you say that but and we used to have the steps and the traditions up on a wall, like a little uh, window shade thing. And I said, no, look right there. You see, it says God. It says God there. It says God there. It has him with a capital H. And he looked at it, and he looked back at me and said, okay, well, just leave it out. And it was – it like stopped me dead in my tracks, like one of those those science fiction movies where they put the robot in a loop. And I go, what? He says, leave it out. Right now your disease is looking for any reason to to run out the door. you know." And so don't worry about it. You can be 110. You don't ever have to believe in anything just keep coming back and keep an open mind. And I so appreciated that he said it that way because I was so paranoid at that point that if anything else, I think would have sent me out the door just as fast because I've heard people tell newcomers, oh, keep coming, you'll get it. Well, I would have been so paranoid, oh my God, the cult is going to get me. (laughs) And the fact that he said I didn't have to believe in anything in particular allowed me to crack the door just a little, the the proverbial mustard seed, into coming up with a belief in a higher power of my own understanding. And um, it, this, it helped, and it helped me see things differently. You know, I, I do have a, a faith today. It's, in, it's almost just that everything is going to happen the way it's going to happen, and it's fine. You know, I had a mother who went back to her church and wanted me to be involved, and then I would try and get her to fly out to California, and she was afraid to fly. And I'd be like, Mom, you keep talking about your wonderful faith, yet you won't get on an airplane. And she was like, well, so you believe God will keep you from dying in a plane crash? And I, I would laugh. i go, Mom, I, I live next to Santa Monica Airport. If God wants me to die in a plane crash, he'll bring the plane to me. you know." And and as, as a result, I had I, I changed, and, and I could you know, come up with a God of my own understanding. And part of it was I had to lose the the. Uh, the, the things that God was Santa Claus for me when I first came in, you know, you know, if you give me this list, I will, you know, I'll believe. And, and today, 
it's it, the most important word for me is the word only in the eleventh step, praying only for knowledge of his will for us. It's my job to just sort of get in line and and, and trust everything's happening for a reason. I I can't like you know, like I mentioned with the word why, I don't know why all this crazy stuff in the world happens. Uh you know, and you know, for for me today, I just have to, to do my part and and trust that it's happening for a reason. And and so it it changed how I saw things. I, ironically enough, I ended up involved in another little bit more organized religion, but it's the one I joined and took ownership of, as opposed to the one that was, you know, handed down to me that I just had so many problems with. And and I'm a great believer in f- figure out you know the higher power that's going to work for you. And number one being, I'm the lesser power. I know that. <laughs> Hope that helps. Thank you, Mary H., for your question. Kathleen, your turn. Hi there. Um, so, uh, I'm Kathleen. I'm a recovering compulsive overeater. Thank you. And, and I'm also clean and sober continuously 34 years. I got sober in Southern California when I was 21. Yeah. So it's Thank you. So it's just a, a joy to hear somebody with some sobriety also abstinent. And um, I um, am just uh, so blessed that uh, um, today I am abstinent about um, tomorrow will be four weeks. But um, I've just, I have found that I just really need to um, uh, focus on um, disease of compulsive overeating because I don't see them as one. I mean, going to AA sure didn't keep me abstinent, and I know going mm-hmm. to OA isn't going to keep me sober. And uh, um, I guess my, I, have, I have a daughter that seems to have an eating disorder, and, and I know I can't do anything about it. Do, do you have children, and was your recovery able to uh, shed any light for them? Uh, no, actually, I, I don't have children. I, uh, uh, I'm sure they probably would have something as a result of my genes because uh, that's what happens. I can tell you it's very hard, and just to, to dovetail on something you said, that if you have a long time in this in, in another program and then you come here, I always joke that you know you, the, uh, the credits don't transfer, and it's really hard sometimes because things are done a little differently in this program, and you have to sort of – you know, be willing to say, hey, you know what, I got to let that go. And what you realize is, when you're down to the last one, it's always going to be the hardest. You know, and and uh, and the only thing I can tell you is, after years in program, trying to get people in, you know, and bang them over the head and drag them in as much as, you, especially people you love, it just doesn't work. Uh, you know, there was a very high profile. A thing that's sort of an outside thing, but of a famous movie star uh, who had a problem, and his his buddies in, out here in L.A. that were producers, were who were in program, were trying to get him in, and it backfired horribly. And it's so, it's so you have to tread so carefully because you can end up muddying the waters, and and uh, if somebody's not ready, then it they may be turned off to it forever if you come on too hard. And you have to trust there's a higher power that will get them there or not, you know, and that it's not you. As much as you want to, the best thing you can do is just be a good example. Thank you, Kathleen, for your question. Carol G. Hi, it's Carol. Did you ask for Carol? 
Yes, go ahead, Carol. Thank you. Thank, thank you, Lane. Good morning. Good morning, Vision for You. Thank you so much, John. I thoroughly enjoyed your share. I really did. Um, and I feel it moved me to, to ask a question or ask for some more details on something that's sure. always puzzled me in OA um, about our literature. And it's, it's how we express um, our illness as a three-legged stool, emotional, spiritual, physical, rather than mental, spiritual, physical. Do you have any mm. more insights on that, please? Sure. Welcome from Britain. I was just, I spoke at a meeting there in London a couple, I don't know, about a month ago. Um, I have always sort of made them synonymous. Uh, emotional slash mental slash psychological, if you want to get even some more scientific about it. I, I really believe in a lot of ways they're the same thing. And I think... It's the one that a lot of times doesn't get as much emphasis. Uh, we'll talk a lot about the physical. We'll talk a lot about the uh, uh, spiritual. And yet the emotional is sort of the bridge between the two in a lot of ways. Uh, and it's, you know, I mean, for me, I'm a great believer in we cannot deny the laws of certain things. We have a, I joke sometimes that we have a, a big uh, a big AA group out here called the Pacific Group. And I always joke you can, you can walk into the Pacific Group with a compound fracture, you know, with the bones sticking out of your leg and they'll say read page 63 of the big book and it's like no go to the emergency room that we we don't you know the laws of things like psychology don't go away just because you walk through the 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 doors of any 12-step program and it they don't have to be uh um you know uh you know not exclusive that they can be they you know that all of this works in a lot of ways the same way we we deal with things from an emotional level because we have a spiritual gap you know we have a sort of a hole that's missing and as a result we we are our emotions and how we deal with things and uh, you know and mental you know it's based on mental are are out of whack you know and the big book talks you know about you know uh, you know, a lot of times these are perfectly God-given instincts, but we take them to the to the, to the degree that they become a problem. And so, I, I just tend to to think of emotional and and mental as, as sort of the same thing. You know, and they're sort of the again the sort of the uh, the bridge between the spiritual and the physical. You know, because you you know I've always heard you get you recover physically first, then emotionally. And then spiritually, and then you get you lose it in the reverse order. You will first start losing a spiritual connection, which will cause emotional uproar, which causes you to go pick up. And so, I find that's you know tends to be the the emotional just sort of tends to be the bridge between spiritual and the physical. Thank you so much, Carol G, for your question. Who else has a question this morning for John K? Star one to unmute. Identify yourself, please. This is Peggy. Peggy, who else? Laura G. Laura G. Anyone else? Melinda H. Melinda. Anyone else? Questions for John K. Mary W. Mary W. Anyone else? Valerie Bryant. Valerie B. Valerie. Okay, great. Let's start with Peggy. Um, hi, John. Uh, this is Peggy F. in Boston. And uh, I, I enjoyed your uh, uh, all you had to say. 
And I, my question is about uh, when you said, well, it's not about the food unless it's about the food. And for me, I have gotten a tremendous amount from working the steps in how I live my life, how I deal with people, how I deal with myself. But um, I'm 62, and I've been obsessed with my weight since I was approximately 12 years old. So I've been on some kind of diet or other for 50 years. And I can't get past the feeling that my food plan is just another diet. And I wonder if you if you have any comments about that. Thank you. Sure, sure. Um, well, you know, I I know that one of, that was another one of those phrases I was using during my relapse of saying, "Oh, I can't be on another diet." And you know, the reality is we're all on a diet of one kind or another. I know I've been on a no liver diet since I left my mother's house because I don't like liver and I don't eat it. And and we all have to eat at a, in some certain way. Now, it you know, again, it comes down to you know, for many of us, it has to do with alcoholic foods. You know, if I could eat every food without a problem, then I could, you know, say I could have everything. But I also have to look at the realistic thing. Like it talks in the big book about eating like a, you know, eating things like a gentleman or a lady and, and what things I can't. Um, and, and so it's, some of that has to do with that. I mean, to me, yes, the, the, like I was joking about before about how, um, I believe, uh, you know, I believe the steps can help anybody anywhere, and, and that you know, I think about you know, because I've also been in Al-Anon for a long time. I don't go as much as I used to, but that it the steps definitely help change the life. But at some point or another, I I need to sort of take ownership of the food and not just hope my food will go in order. Because I, I, for me personally, I believe that's my disease trying to negotiate. I'm not saying it has to be. So regimented, I was in another program for a while that had a very regimented food plan, and the trouble with that was that it, uh, I then made it into an authority figure, and then I rebelled against it. You know, we have a, a guy out here named Ray. He, we joke that Ray's been around since there were two steps because he's he's like eighty something, and I forget thirty, forty years now maybe. And Ray says, I my abstinence, my my food plan is I eat whatever I want, whenever I want, as much as I want, if I'm willing to pay the price, and today I'm not. So I eat three weight and measured meals, nothing in between, et cetera, et cetera. And what he, what he enumerates is essentially the same food plan, the food thing that my uh, the other food program I was in was. But the point is, is he is taking ownership of it, not making it somebody else's and saying, look, this is what I need to do. And for me, you know, I... I think we we will always be on a diet one time or another, and if you sit there and say, well, I don't want to be constrained in by having to not eat this or that, that's fine if it can be done. But you've also got to ask yourself, is it part of your disease negotiating? And it may not be, but that would be something I would consider is that I'm not saying you have to be in the regimented thing, but just, you know, it, it actually says, if you read the, t- the tools of recovery in, in OA, it talks about, some food plan, no matter how strict or loose, is advisable. Just like you know, we have to. Alcoholics have to know what things they can drink and not drink. Um, it's just to me, it's it it, it it's it's a matter of the reality versus uh, uh, you know how I'd like it to be. Sort of you know the serenity prayer thing. Thank you, Peggy, for your question, Laura G. 
your turn. I'm guessing star one. <laughs> I'm guessing that too, morning. Laura. Good morning. I, I, I was muted. I apologize. Sure. No problem. Thank you. Um, I have said so much that I'm just reading, and I feel like um, what really I felt in her mind is when you said when you take um, or you could take chocolate and say it's vegetables per se. And I just wondered, is there a specific step you do when, um, you know, when you were at that place, when you would say to yourself or, you know, reflect that chocolate was like vegetables, and I'm assuming um, it was to be in charge, which is what I heard you say, but even in now with all your recovery, if you go to that place, is there a specific step that you, you count on? Thank you. Okay. Well, um I, you know, I still think it comes down to the combination of the first three steps, and 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 to never. It's, I mean, it's funny when I lead retreats and things. I'll very often I'll walk out and I'll one of the first things I'll say is, "I'm so sorry, you guys should have heard me five years ago, because five years ago I had all the answers, you know, and uh, now I don't." Uh, I think the older you get, the more you you don't put your brain on a pedestal you begin to realize you've watched how many times you've sort of messed up in various things both in program and out of program that you sort of want to ground out with other people in because you know your brain isn't exactly you know perfect like he says in the the 12 and 12 you know going it alone in spiritual matters is is not a good idea in that I have a sponsor I talk to every day and then sometimes more I had breakfast with him yesterday morning um, that I I tend to try if I have any sense that something's a little um, hinky I I will run it by him because I like like it was you know I mean I make the joke about chocolate being a vegetable but really just the idea that I sometimes can't be a hundred percent sure because I I have a disease that's wrapped around every you know little you know. Um, part of my brain and, and I can think I'm thinking things right and when it's actually the disease sort of you know grab the steering wheel out of my hand and I don't even know it so for me the biggest part is accepting you know that I'm a lesser power and being willing to ground it out with the reality in those steps of of people to talk to and if I can't get him I've got my god squad I can talk to about Oh God, I don't know how many people in, and ironically, most of them aren't actually in NLA anymore. You know, they're in various places around, God, not even just the country, the world, and um, and because I just don't trust my own be- best thinking anymore, I will. I mean, even three, four years in, I mean, like I said, the longer I'm around, the more recovery, the less I feel, you know, absolutely sure about anything in my brain. In the old days, my first came in, oh, I knew it all, and now I. I don't trust that anymore. So I tend to try and stick with the real world idea of having people I can call and talk to and run things by and not, not just about food, about a lot of things because I'm finding it, it, it doesn't hurt to have other thoughts come in because even if, even if I end up doing what I think is right, somebody's input may just change, change it a little and get me to do the right thing. I think God speaks through people for me. 
You know, and just like it says in the second tradition about our only authority is God as he expresses himself in a group conscience, meaning more, you know, two or more people, just not my own crazy brain by itself. Thank you, Laura, for your question. Melinda H., your turn. Hi, thank you so much. Thanks, everyone, for their service. Um, I've been in... Um, away for about three years I have to listen to phone meetings because I don't have a a local OA I do go to AA meetings as well I've been um, listening to meetings for about three years I've had a number of sponsors the most I've been abstinent is about three weeks I read the big book I pray and I still um, you know am not consistently abstinent I have become sick um, and unhealthy, and I just continue, you know, to uh, go downhill. So I'm wondering if you have any feedback on uh, what you may have told some of your sponsees or any feedback for me on why I'm not willing, maybe, or what what are your thoughts? Thank you. Okay, thanks. Um, well, the one thing I I really I have yeah this is just I can only share my experience is that uh, I really try and get sponsees most of the sponsees I have now have got a long amount of time but I will talk outreach with people who who uh, have less uh, or having problems and struggling and I say again if you can start to grasp the concept of of well you know when I first came in the first compulsive bite that phrase the first compulsive bite was it really stressed more to to know where is that that line I'm about to step over you know and 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 when people do sort of have nebulous thing it, it's a little hard so the idea of having an idea of what that line is and then also the the grasping the concept like I talked about earlier of of where do I stop and where does my disease begin? Because if you're doing all this stuff and you're listening today and you're doing everything you can, you don't want to be doing this. But that's where that salesman I talked about comes back in and convinces you that you do when, no, you don't. You don't want to be doing that or you wouldn't be doing all this work. And and when you can start to grasp that that's the face of the disease and that's a disease coming at you, it's easier than just saying, oh, I changed my mind, and, and uh, I guess I'm not willing. I mean, because those are all – my disease is just so good at figuring out how to get its foot in the door. And a lot of times it's – I always say my disease can back up as far as it has to to get in. Uh, in other words, my disease knows now it can't tell me, oh, go go to the 7-Eleven and buy a bunch of food need it. But it'll keep backing up until it can find a little – a way to nudge me. You know, they, they talk about how um, – if those meteors are heading toward Earth, you don't blow a meteor up in front of the Earth. You go out billions of miles and nudge it just an inch. And by the time it gets to Earth, it you know, passes you way off to the side. Well, that's what my disease wants to do. It wants to go out as far as it needs to to just nudge me enough to get me to stop doing what I need to be doing. And, and uh, you know, for me today, it would be something like saying, oh, you know what, you're going to too many meetings. You don't need to go to so many meetings. And if it can get to me to do that, then maybe I drop my meetings from three a week to two a week and then from two to one. And then somewhere down the way, it's going to get in. And so I think the, to get back to your question, I think it's it's starting to recognize what the voice of the disease is. Because, again, 
and thinking about what it's saying, because a lot of the things my disease says to me when I'm in that relapse cycle has to do with not getting me to do the real-world things I need to, like pick up a phone before I'm going to pick up that first compulsive bite. Again, that used to be, this is old-time AA stuff. It's not even old-time OA stuff. It's old-time AA, pick up the phone, be willing to realize I'm at that point of, of picking up you know, and again, the wonderful thing that you have with a vision for you is you have a phone list that you get somebody in the middle of their day almost anywhere, at any time, and to be willing to do that and to be willing to commit. And that's one of the things I ask my sponsees to do. Again, I don't believe we get the gift of abstinence. It's given to us, but we can give it, a, we can give it away. And again, part of us giving it away is thinking we'll get it back. And, you know, we may never get it back. But we can also put as many impediments between us and the first compulsive bite, which what I tell my sponsees is make calls, make calls when they're, you know, I'm available, you know, certain time to certain time I'm married. So I've got to be a little, um, you know, uh, nice to my wife. So I'm going to get four phone calls at two in the morning. But for the most part. Almost everybody I sponsor, you know, first of all, they don't, they aren't, like I said, I, most of the people have long-term with me, but, you know, if they ever had a problem, they could. So it's a matter of being willing to realize where you start and the disease start, stops and vice versa so that you can, and be willing to go to any lengths. That's the key. Like I said, this is what makes the disease so hard and you know you should be doing it, but are you willing to go to any lengths? And if we have a program that's based on AA, we have to take it as seriously as people in AA take their their meetings and they're giving up their sobriety. Nobody I know from my AA meetings is going to just be like, oh, I, I guess I got lost my sobriety again today uh it would be a big thing so i just suggest making that first compulsive bite as big a thing to you as you can thank you melinda for your question mary w your turn hi this is mary w um thank you so much your talk has really inspired me and my question is about um the food plan Mm-hmm. Um, do you have a basic food plan that you start people out on? And I'm asking that because I was started on one, and now my sponsor has gone to um, an allergy diet where she only eats a food for one day, and then she doesn't eat it again for four days. Mm. And um, and she's trying to get me on that. So, and And that doesn't feel right to me. Mm. Well, it's funny. I just um, I wrote an article for an outside website. I, I do some th- I do some writing about compulsive eating, and I wrote it, and it was actually a comparison of the various food programs. And one of the people I was talking to is a person I've 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 heard of and known of for a long time. She's a twelve step person who's also uh, uh, I don't know if she's a registered dietitian, but she does a lot. I mean, she's, she's a professional in that field. And in her beliefs, she said for a long time, is nobody, no matter what food program you're in, should be doing anything except going to a professional for their for their uh, uh, for their for that information. She she made a really good point. She said, look, I'm I am I'm a you know a professional in in dietitian. I don't want to go to a plumber to be told what to eat. And if my sponsor's a plumber and I'm I'm letting my sponsor tell me what to do, it's just not very sound. In other words, I 
I'm a big believer in in whenever possible to work off some kind of a food plan. One I, one of the things I've seen for years, and it, it sort of it drives me crazy a little, and especially in 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 AA is 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 they miss the point that says in the book we're not professionals. You know, um, you know I'll hear people in AA telling uh, you know other members they should be getting off of medications that they need to be on, and they end up committing suicide or things like that. And the the OA version of that here being telling people what they should be eating. I, I, I mean, I always joke uh, that I tell my sponsees I'm I'm not the food police. I'm the honesty police. You know, if somebody tells me, but I do try and work out and talk to them about what they're doing for the most part, and and say, well, and before you're going to change that, let's talk, and you know. But I would never give somebody a full full out food plan. And if if I had one recommendation is that everybody go to a professional, work it out with a professional, uh, if they can, and then that that should be end of argument. No, you know, you know, no sponsor should be telling a sponsee, in my opinion, uh, oh stop doing what this guy who's got an MD is telling you and do what I tell you, even though I'm a plumber. <laughs> so, uh, when in doubt, try and go that way. I mean. I don't think it's important people ever be in lockstep food-wise. I have the foods I can eat that my sponsees can't eat, and vice versa. And uh, you know, you know, my sponsee called me the other day, so I had this and this, and he, he tells me this one thing. I go, God bless you. I wish I could do that, <laughs> but I can't. I'm, I'm like, I could have it tomorrow if I want, but then I won't stop. So it's not an option. And I hope that helped. Thank you, Mary W. Valerie B. Your turn. Star one to unmute, Valerie. Sorry. Uh, thank you so much for your share and uh, and your service. Um, my question is that um, I I also have multiple things. You know, I I uh, uh, you know recovering from uh, or I recovered, you know, from uh, you know substance abuse and you know cigarettes all that kind of stuff. And, you know, the food seems by far the hardest of all. Um, uh, and, and, and the sugar and everything, the sugar is just really, like, I'm, I'm really flipping out with that. But I realized with these substances, basically for me, I use sugar and, and certain foods to help me deal with life. And, um, and now that it's gone, you know, now that I'm, you know, like abstaining from that, I, you know, I, I've done things on, um, you know, I, 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 not this time. I mean, the last time, like I'll do things. Like the last time I was in abstinence, I, I'd be spending money I shouldn't be spending, you know, mm. and it took be a long time to dig myself out of that one. And then, you know, or I'll do something else that's really stupid, you know, like just stupid things, you know, to help me. So, like, does any, do you ever, have you ever experienced that? Or, like, I guess what I'm asking also is, like, where do you go with the pain? You know, ah. you know what I'm saying? No. Yeah, no, I know exactly what you're saying. And this is where, 
you know, the phrase I heard said a long time ago was put down the food and pick up the, pick up the steps in one motion, you know, meaning, and it is true, the, the various things we've used over the years, and for many of us, we may start with food and then get into this and that and the other, and we may have three or four going at once at, and then lose them one by one. And, and like I've always said, the last one's going to be the hardest because you're left with life unvarnished, life unmedicated. And, uh, but the growth will come if if you if you start getting into the steps, hang in, work this as hard as you can, because um, I would always turn to the food when I had a problem, and I always say it's like it's like I was a rat in a maze, and I was a rat in a maze that kept going down the wrong one on a maze. You know, if you can imagine a rat going down and trying to get out the other side, and instead goes down this maze and bangs his head against the end. And then turns around, goes back, and then comes back down the same one again because I kept making it, a, trying to make food work over and over instead of trying a different way out of the maze that might be harder, might be a little more painful, but I would get out. You know, We have a guy named Ira here who's got 35, I think, maybe years, and he says, pray for the, for the gift of uncomfortableness, meaning you know, that's how we're going to get through things. Is we're not going to get through things by continually turning to the food. It's like being in a bad relationship with somebody and then you, you leave the relationship and you go get another one and you, because, and you end up with the same cycle over and over because you're not dealing with the actual problem on, you know, that, that you're having with people because it's, you know, you're the same person. And it's the same here, you, you know, you've got to have everything down and that's not easy. And, you know, people say, well, you know, food's the worst. I think it's the last one's the worst, and usually it tends to be food. You know, I actually, we had a lady we I really good friends with who uh, put the food down. In fact, actually had stomach surgery and then became an alcoholic because she was desperately trying to to find some way to medicate her pain instead of working on the real thing it's an inside it's an inside job and if it was only about putting down the food uh, you know this would like you said it would be another diet but that's the whole idea with the steps overall is to change how we feel and to change how we react to things so that we don't want to i, I always say putting the food down is sort of like you know it's like having a car with a racing motor and, and, you know, you can't get the car to turn off and it's racing. Well, if you put the food down, it's like putting the car in neutral. Uh, yeah, it's, it, the car is not running, but it won't take much to, like, lean across and kick it into gear and the car is off again. But the steps help you get the engine turned off, get the engine dis disassembled so that it won't happen again. Uh, you know, and again, it doesn't mean we don't go through things where, gee, there's a, you know, you know, a drink would help that, uh, a, you know, a big piece of cake would help that at any given moment. But it's not day in and day out. One of the problems with me with when I was going through my relapse cycle is I was going through the hardest times over and over and over because it's, to me, it's always been, you know, it was always harder in the beginning, you know, and then abstinence begins to take on a life of its own after a while. But it's like pushing a, a car that's stalled. Have you ever tried to help somebody jumpstart a car and you try and push a car? You know, when you first start to push a car, it's really hard to get going. But then once you get going, it's not hard to keep it going. But what I was doing with my food was I was constantly pushing the car and then letting it roll to a stop and then pushing the car and then letting it roll to a stop. And I was surprised at how hard the abstinence was. Well, it's because I was going through the hardest part over and over. 
and the key it had to become that food could no longer be a, 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 an answer to my problems, and I needed to immediately get in and start working the stuff in in the big book. I mean, it's at the end of the day, I talked a lot of stuff very practical today, and I didn't probably drop as many big book phrases as as I uh, as other people will. But it still comes down to what's in that book uh, that we have to change the underlying thing. If we do that will change how we see life. If all I do is keep going to the default behavior of the food, I'm never going to grow and and find a way out. Thank you, Valerie, for your question. Thank you. John, you have a few more minutes for a couple sure. more questions? Okay, sure. so let's see who else has questions. We'll wrap. Sarah W. So here, Sarah W. Mary Lou. Mary Lou. Connie S. Connie S. Take those three. Let's start with Sarah W. Good morning, Leah. Thank you so much for your service. John, I just loved your presentation very thorough, and I appreciate it so much. Um, <clears throat> I was wanting to ask the question. Um, I also am in uh, three programs. I call myself a trifecta. Um, <laughs> what in mind is um, when people come to us that are really struggling in and out of the food, and they seem to really want the program. And we're, you know, attempting to, you know, be the channel through which God is using to help them. Um, what is the most effective way you find when they're really coming and wanting the help but they keep picking up, what is the most effective way to help those people um, and still, um, you know, practice um you know, love and tolerance, and at the same time uh, try to be, um, you know, I know I can go to my higher power and ask these things, but I'm just wondering how you deal with it. That's my well, question. You know, it's, it's a good one because it's a tough one. It's, uh, you know, I got to say that, um, um, and, and okay, I'm talking another program now, but having gone to Al-Anon really helped me be a much better sponsor because I, uh, I had to lose some of my people pleasing and and you know we all want to be liked we all want to make people feel good and we all want to almost say what what they want to hear yet sometimes what they want to hear is exactly the wrong thing and what they need to hear is not easy you know I'm still a big believer in you know what they say about uh, uh say what you mean mean what you say just don't say it mean and that sometimes you have to sort of be honest with them and say, you know, I mean, and it doesn't have to come from a place of judgment either. Um, you know, I've had, you know, and, and I've dealt with sponsees in, in that are go on both both ends of the spectrum, ones who will beat themselves mercilessly and those who uh, want to make excuses for everything they do. And there's no one set hard and fast rule. It's like I'm not going to be a baseball fan. I say, you know, managers have to know what team they're managing. Some some teams need a strong hand that says, no, come on, quit being a you know BS artist. And other ones have to be like, come on, man, quit beating yourself up so much. And that's sort of what we have to do in some respects. And it, it still comes down to try and be honest and to let them know there's no judgment involved. I always joke with my sponsees. I don't. If you go out and eat. It's okay. I won't gain a pound, <laughs> you know. But and to let them know, you know, I've got a good ego strength. I'm not going to take it personally if you go. I'm not your higher power. I'm not, I don't get to take credit for you staying absent, and I don't have to feel bad if you break it. I just mm. need to be here to try and do my job as best I can, and 
and but to point out some of the the um the ways that maybe they're not being willing to go to any lengths then the ways they may not be willing to think the, you know about how their disease is working on them and you know if they do pick up what were they saying did they really believe they were powerless you know were they leaving forever if not then well what was going through your head that made you think you were powerless yet you went and picked up you know and you know these aren't you know again it's about saying it in a nice way you're not trying to be you know uh, anything other than a channel like you said of of these things but to at the same time not be a people pleaser and again it's 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 not always easy to do that but you know i i will say this and i i always have to preface this because it can come out sounding wrong i i talk about mommy love versus daddy love and uh it is not having to do with the gender of the person but mommy love is that kind of thing mothers give kids at an early age oh you're wonderful it's great they're nothing but positive reinforcement which is something kids really do need at a certain age but at a certain age, the daddy love has to kick in where daddy says, you know, okay, you know all those great things mommy told you about how you're special and all? Well, here's the truth. <laughs> now, both of those, mommy love and daddy love, are both love at the end of the day has to be the number one thing. But the thing with mommy love is my disease loves mommy love. And by that I mean, you know, oh, you ate again. Don't worry. Don't beat yourself up. It's okay. You know, slipping's part of the program. And my disease loves that because it'll go, wow, that's great. In fact, I'm going to go binge again because, you know, and the daddy love is different. It isn't, oh, you're a horrible person that you ate, but it's like, yeah, yeah, you sort of messed up here. You know, what can we learn so this doesn't happen again? What, and, you know, like I said, sometimes I've, uh, you know, this actually dovetails back to somebody's question about writing is uh, I'll sometimes sit and say, I'd like you to try and think about what you were thinking about when you were, when you decided to pick up, what was going on what could, what kinds of things could you have done? What were alternative ways and try and go at it that way. And it does get frustrating. It's really hard sometimes to be a sponsor. I, uh, Years ago, I went and found – I was getting so frustrated as a sponsor, I went and found this book that was in one of these alternative places on how to sponsor in 12-step programs. I'm like, great, now there's a book. And I get it home and I read it, and it's just all these different stories from different people in different 12-step programs, and they're all over the place. They're absolutely 180 degrees uh, contradictory. One will say, oh, if I, my person's, my sponsee's slipping, I, I want to let him go with love because obviously I'm not the right person. Another person's like, no, I never I never abandon anybody. You know, So you know, rule number one is there are no rules, but it's about trying – to help that person realize uh, very often the denial and just trying to be the objective person. You know, that's what we all are at the end of the day is just a, a point of objectivity. We don't have uh, any vested interest in the person's eating or not eating. We certainly have it in our own, though. And so that's where the sponsorship chain is so important. I need somebody to ground out my food with just like my sponsees need, need to have me there to help them ground theirs out. So I don't know if that's any help. Thank you, Sarah W. For your question, Mary Lou, it's your turn. Hi, hi, Lou. Can you hear me? Yep. Yep. Hi, this is uh, hi John Mary Lou in Southern California. I'm actually in, in LA right now for a dance uh-huh. conference. Anyway, um, I call the city actually. Um, I oh. my, my question two miles away from me. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it's just fiber and dance. But anyway, um, so. My question is about the ego strength, kind of uh, ego strength. How did you get the ego strength to trust yourself after you left the very weighted and measured food program 
and you said you rebelled against the weight and measured black and white being told from an external source how to eat. Mm. Where did you get the ego strength? When did the, when was the jig up when <laughs> uh, when you started internalizing it and having the ego strength enough to say, look, I'm not going to eat that food. I don't need to call, call it in, and I don't need to follow that plan in particular, but I am going to weigh and measure. I'm not mm. going to do it that way, but I am going to have the self-trust, the ego strength, when did that happen in your program? Second question, what have you done to expand your spiritual life, like the big book says, to because mm-hmm. you sound very mature in your recovery. What did you do to say, okay, I am very recovered here in the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous. Now I'm going to, maybe I'm not going to do my childhood faith, but I'm open to maturing my psychological and spiritual life in this other way. When did that happen, and how do you integrate the two, the 12 step and you're either religious or whatever it is you're doing to expand your spiritual life. That's it. Okay, great. Thanks. Um, well, uh, the thing that happened to me within the other program, and there was absolutely nothing wrong with that other program other than, um, and it was absolutely what I needed at the time because I was so slipping and sliding in, in the program um, uh, that I needed to, um, do that, but I also realized I was really using it as a weapon to beat myself up um, because I I truly believe nobody was doing it exactly the way it was written, and I just always walked around with a low-level guilt. Um, I wasn't eating compulsively. I was not. Um, I was certainly at a healthy body weight, and um, but I also realized I that there were certain things that that didn't work. And again, it, you know, sort of comes back to the thing I'd said earlier that, you know, I'd read their food plans and know that there's certain things that just, just from a purely scientific basis don't make a lot of sense. Uh, uh, you know, everybody eating the exact same amount of food, especially for the first 30 days, depending, and, and you could be a, you know, a 300 pound uh, linebacker with USC in spring training, and you're eating the exact same amount. A hundred pound secretary who sits all day eats just isn't isn't logical. You know, it's just not it's not uh, doesn't make a lot of sense. But the bottom line is is I needed to come back, and uh, but I didn't. The one thing I knew absolutely, and I wouldn't think of it as ego strength. I think it's more about I uh, knowing my own self. I needed to go. Uh, luckily, I came back and got the same sponsor I had when I left go to that other program for a while and worked it out with him and said, look, this is what I think I want to do. Does this sound right to you? Because I don't think I, I can trust being flying blind. I needed to go over it with him and make sure it sounded right. And luckily I had by then sanity had set in and I could have that discussion with him. Whereas I think before I went away, we kept playing around with my food. And again, the whole redefining my abstinence BS was because my disease still had a hold of me. So by going over that, I did that. Um, We actually have this sort of subgroup. They're they're definitely OA people, but this uh, called sober eating is going to be there's actually going to be part of the sober eating workshop at our uh, our birthday party this year. And by the way, if you're in LA, January 15th through 17th, the OA birthday party is uh, this big thing. We're going to have pretty close to 600 people, and uh, uh, they're going to do the sober eating workshop. And they're sort of like that food program, except they don't tell you what to have. They just help you work out uh, uh, how to do that. And one of the guys who, who who started this, Dr. Adam S., he's a psychologist, he's t- 
to me is one of the greatest lines I've ever heard. He said, here's how you know you have a food that you shouldn't be eating, is that while you're eating it, you're thinking to yourself, when am I going to get it again? <laughs> and I just, boy, that set an alarm bell off. I'm like, God, that, yeah, because I love broccoli, but I don't sit there thinking about when I'm going to have it again. But um, the point being is that I, I was, luckily, I'd been graced with the sanity that had returned, that I was able to go before, I, I didn't just walk away from that program. I sort of, I sort of slid back into OA and got my old sponsor back and worked out what I was going to do with the food. Not just, okay, I'm done with that very rigid food plan. I'm just going to go yeehaw and do whatever I want because I, I, you know, I saw for myself that just didn't work. Um, if you're not doing anything today, by the way, Serenity Sunday in Beverly Hills at uh, 1030. I will, the treasure there, I'll be there. Um, uh, but then on to the other part about spiritual and 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 uh, enhancing my spiritual life. I actually ended up going through a conversion process for another religion and studying it. And and uh, because I I am I mean I think if you're trying, you're always on a quest to understand and know more and 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 know yourself. At the end of the day, it comes down to um, you know finding yourself. I happen to like the tradition in my new religion of you know arguing <laughs> wrestling with god and the idea that there's no right answers i came from one where here's the party line and if you don't like it you know my way or the highway whereas you know today it's about me me you know trying to find the best uh, you know person i can be and and to be exploring it and 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 to continually keep learning and reading, and I'm always reading something new, and and uh, some of the stuff I'll start reading, and I'll go, oh, this is a crock, <laughs> you know, and put it down. But I want to keep an open mind because, you know, I don't think um, I don't think we ever understand everything totally. So I really try to keep an open mind and talk to people. That's the great thing about LA. There's every possible groups in the world here, and I can talk. And you know, at the end of the day, it still comes down. I, I know when I went through this conversion process, I had to go in front of like a board of people, and I said to them, at the end of the day, anybody can tell you whatever you want to hear. At the end of the day, it comes down to, am I going to be a good ambassador of your religion? Am I going? What am I going to do with? the outside world, you know, and it, to me, it all comes down, all these religions come down to pr practically the same thing, you know, which is, you know, love thy neighbor, neighbor as thyself, I am Lord, meaning, you know, you know, treat, you know, everybody as you'd want to be treated. And I, I think I try to do that both in, in actions and in respect and all that. And, uh, and, but I keep looking for more. I want to understand and do better. So I hope that helps. Thank you, Mary Lou, for your questions. And our final question for the morning comes from Connie S. Hi, I'm, I'm Connie S., and I'm in Alexandria, Virginia. Um, thanks for your sharing. Uh, it's really important for me to be on this call. In fact, it was kind of funny the way I woke up this morning. was uh, I have a sound machine, and it started making a funny sound at about 8:35, and I didn't set my alarm, and I'd wanted to to get on the phone, and I'm really glad that that happened. I think that's probably a little boost from higher power. Um, I appreciate um, hearing about relapse because I've been in relapse for oh, over two years now, and I I'm a member of AA as well since 1988, and I've been consistently 
sober from alcohol since then. Um, but I, when I started working this program, I was already in an, in a non-program, um, that my husband is a, a, a member of the active, uh, addiction program. And, and that, um, I guess one of my main problems is, is that I've always had this kind of feeling since I've been a little girl, like I can remember at the age of four being in kindergarten and I've always felt big and like, I've always compared myself in that way. I've always looked at that and I lost 80 pounds. I went from 230 pounds down to 150 and I've done this, you know, at other times in my life, but what what happened was I got to that 149 actually, and and my uh, nutritionist and my doctor they seemed to be happy with it, but I just I didn't feel happy with myself. I had said to myself I'm not going to get any surgery because I'm all about comfort. I don't want any scars. I don't want any pain. And then I you know I had people telling me well go to the gym, and I was listening to them trying to get the you know six pack, and that would never work with how much weight that I lost, and I was felt really unattractive even though I, I you know everybody seems to say you, oh, you have a yeah but the, yeah. the question is is that you know I know that I'm supposed to be good to myself and be nice to myself but I'm like I'm always beating myself up and it just never seems like it's going to work you know and uh, I don't know it's like uh, I guess how do you, you said something about um, treating yourself uh, good, you know, being mm-hmm. kind to yourself. And I know this is something that I told somebody else, but I just can't get it back. Mm. I'm having trouble getting that back. And I want this. I really want it. I don't want to suffer. I didn't get sober to suffer. <laughs> and I just want it back. And I'm starting to come back, and I'm listening to these meetings every day. I'm gathering some hope that this is something that I could have, you know, from this mental obsession to be a certain way in order to be happy. That's my question. Well, you know, I think it's, um, I don't know how to put, it's a combination of two things, and one of which is is to be able to pull back and to realize that, you know, my disease, one of the things, again, like I said earlier, my disease wants to take all of these perfectly good program concepts and find a way to use them to get me back into the food or keep me in the food. And one one of those ways was to say, well, I have to treat myself well and I have to be nice to myself. I definitely need, that is an absolute perfectly valid thing. But not being in the food is being nice to myself and, and saying, I these these foods aren't good for me both physically and and you know in a lot of ways way more important is how I feel once I've done that and how bad I feel because I uh, you know if I know again like I said earlier if I know that uh, that eating certain foods is self-destructive for me I have to remember that that that's self-destructive because in that moment my disease will say oh no this is this will comfort you well you know they're called comfort foods for a reason, but it doesn't mean that they're really good. It just means that you will have a moment of comfort 
but the reality is it's not good for me. And like I said, when that lady said to me that one time after I talked about beating myself up and I'm not going to beat myself up for eating, and she pointed out that beating my, uh, I was beating myself up by eating, that I started to look at things differently. And it's hard because, again, you've got a disease that's, that, that is constantly guiding you toward not getting better, and that's why I can't do it alone. It still comes down to the first three steps of – of I've got a problem with this this specific area of my life, and when it comes to that area, I'm nuts. I, I don't feel like I'm nuts on any given day, but when I look backwards at my life and my history, I am, and I need help from a power greater than myself. And at the end of the day, you know, now where I am, it, it is about a, a, an overall higher power, but in the beginning, just being willing to go to a, another human being and say, hey, I need help with this day-to-day, and it's so hard if you come from another program because, again, you want the credits to transfer. You and and it's so hard to believe how hard this is when the others weren't as hard. But again, it's always going to be that last one that's going to be the hardest because it means now we're life unvarnished. You know, I um, read a biography of Bill Wilson by um, Susan Cheever. And it talks about in the last couple of weeks of his life, he started asking for alcohol again. And I've always wondered that, you know, he was a severe smoker and smoked crazily until the end of his life. And uh, it wasn't until that last couple of weeks where he just became bedridden and couldn't get cigarettes. And that's when he started asking for, uh, you know, for for uh, alcohol again. And I always wondered, geez, was it because all of the work hadn't actually been finished and 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 now you know i want you know i want something to feel better and i i mean i don't know that i'm not making a judgment i'm just saying i it comes down to once we give up the last one i've had a number of people who i know were like aa circuit speakers come into oa for a couple of weeks and leave because they can't get it and they you know a lot of them are severely overweight and it's you know, it gets down to you've got to be willing to take life unvarnished. But then you also have to start growing and looking at how you look at food and and the idea of self-love and and to realize uh, that sometimes maybe it isn't the most mature thing to say I got to treat myself well by allowing myself to have everything I want. You know, because that's you know that doesn't make any more sense than allowing yourself to have whatever you want to drink. It has to it has to be about doing doing good self-care and for me that's coming in getting a sponsor taking direction getting into the steps and going through this book that you've read a thousand times and reading it with a new pair of glasses on that's that is with everything put down and being uncomfortable for a while until things get better so and i can tell you we're not masochists here those of us who have had a decent amount of time and have all these things down if it was as hard as it was in the first few days or weeks we wouldn't keep doing it but it gets better and you have to believe that and have the faith that we're not lying to you when we say it it will get better thank you that's an important note to end on thank you to all uh, who posed questions this morning and of course John, thank you for your service. You gave so much well, of yourself you for this morning. Thank you. Uh, your humor is always appreciated as well. I'm still laughing over my inner adult. Thank you. And I'll, <laughs> close, <laughs> I'll close from page 164 the way we always close here on A Vision for You. Our book is meant to be suggestive only. We realize we know only a little. God will constantly disclose more to you and to us.
Ask him in your morning meditation what you can do each day for the man who is still sick. The answers will come if your own house is in order. But obviously, you cannot transmit something you haven't got. See to it that your relationship with him is right, and great events will come to pass for you and countless others. This is a great fact for us. Abandon yourself to God as you understand God. Admit your faults to him and to your fellows. Clear away the wreckage of your past. Give freely of what you find and join us. We shall be with you in the fellowship of the Spirit. And you will surely meet some of us as you trudge the road of happy destiny. May God bless you and keep you. Until then.